Luke chapter 19, starting at verse... Uh, sorry, yes, Luke chapter 20, reading the first 19 verses. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will, ask, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to, to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we do now pray that uh, you would be opening up our minds and our hearts that we would understand more clearly who Jesus is and the uh, priority that he ought to have in our hearts, in our lives, in our thinking and our, in our actions. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. Let me tell you about a lady uh, called Monique Aguero. Uh, she comes from uh, Argent Argentina. And uh, she was looking forward to her big holiday in Australia. And uh, she had done the work of getting online and booking the uh, airline tickets herself. And most of us, I guess, would have done that at some stage. But you know, it can be a bit tricky uh, to book online. But everything seemed fine. Uh, she boarded her uh, plane in Buenos Aires, uh, which I believe means a good wind in Spanish. Is that right? Yep. Um, and uh, she boarded the plane, but for, for whatever reason, it didn't occur to her to be an anomaly that they... Uh, her fir the first leg of the journey was from Buenos Aires to Canada. Uh, when she uh, 
got off the plane in Canada to get onto the plane for the next leg of the journey to Sydney, uh, she wondered if something might be a bit uh, not quite right uh, when they put her onto a rather small propeller-driven plane. Uh, and indeed, something uh, was not quite right. Uh, she had certainly booked a flight to Sydney, but she did not check the fine print. And uh, she ended up enjoying a nice couple of weeks in the old um, uh, coal and steel mill town of Sydney, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Uh, I think that maybe next time she might avail herself of the services of a travel agent. Um, it's the same name, but a very, very different place. And uh, the reason I mention this story, just to kind of pique your interest and so on and draw you in, is uh, really that people can make a similar sort of mistake when it comes to Jesus. Uh, people can talk about Jesus as being a the famous figure from the first century, but they can have a very different Jesus in mind uh, because they don't check the detail. They don't check the fine print as to who Jesus is and what he actually said about himself. And so we see these uh, people talking about this Jesus, but with a completely different Jesus in mind. I've seen this a little bit in the media in the last week or so. There's been a lot of discussion about the same-sex marriage issue, so a moral-slash-political issue. And it's been interesting to me that I've read people who have... Uh, have said quite categorically that if Jesus was alive today, then he would be agreeing with them on their political point of view. Um, now, what they're saying, I don't want to get into the issue. Uh, you want to find out more about, read, listen to the camp talks on that particular issue. But what they're doing is they're treating Jesus as if he is some sort of a authoritative moral figure from the past. And th that's not uncommon. Other people, of course, do think of Jesus as being a, a revolutionary who wanted to change the world, who failed, but nevertheless who was very, very inspiring uh, in uh, the sacrifices that he made. Um, other people, of course, uh, think of Jesus as being the founder of a great religion, a great world religion, and so they put him in the same category as being um, like people like Muhammad and, uh, and Buddha and Jesus and so on. They talk about Jesus, but they have really a very, very different Jesus in mind. It's a bit like booking a ticket to Sydney and ending up in Nova Scotia. Now, it is important for us to, to get the detail right about who Jesus is. Uh, not just for non-Christians, but for Christians as well, because we can actually become a bit fuzzy and a bit hazy on this uh, particular topic. Now, today we're finishing off our series of the parables of Jesus. Uh, next week, I want to start a series on the book of Colossians. But in Luke chapter 20, if you, can you open that up in your Bibles, Luke chapter 20? And... Uh, uh, of course, there's an outline for you as well. If you're a note taker, I recommend taking notes. 
always helps me to stay awake when I take notes in a sermon. Does it, does it have that effect for you? Not that I need to when we've got such great preachers like Peter Charles and so on, but uh, anyway. <clears throat> now, it's always helpful when we're, as a general principle of interpretation, that when we look at a, a passage from the Bible, that we don't just look at it in isolation. Uh, we need to look at it in context. You, you, you know, I've, I've told you this one before, that you, if you take the text out of context, what are you left with? You're left with a, a con. Okay. Uh, another, another one is uh, that uh, a text out of context is a proof text for a pretext. Think about that. <laughs> That's a bit harder to wrap your mind around. But it's really important that we look at the, look at the setting, look at the scene, in order to, if we're going to understand uh, the text in its, in its profundity. Now, that's true here, and the, the, uh, the text really, uh, the context really begins, uh, in one sense, at the end of, the, uh, of chapter 19, and uh, certainly the first eight verses of uh, Luke chapter 20. The location is the temple in Jerusalem, so Jesus has, uh, has arrived, at his destination, and in the, in the verses just above, the last verses of chapter 19, uh, Jesus became angry when he got to the temple because when he got there it was full of merchants that were selling stuff that could be used for sacrifices and he got some whips and what did he do? He drove the merchants out. It was a pretty dramatic action on the part of Jesus. Uh, and then uh, in uh, these first, uh, uh, first couple of verses of chapter 20, the religious leaders, the, uh, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the elders, they challenge Jesus with a question. And the question's really important. The question is, they tell us, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Uh, who gave you this authority? That's their question. Now, in one sense, what they're saying is, uh, mate, who do you think you are? Uh, but I think that there might be something a bit more subtle that's going on here as well. And that is that they may, in fact, be baiting Jesus. It's a trick question. Uh, because they would love it if Jesus responded by saying, well, you want to know whose authority I'm doing this? I'm doing this by the authority of God, uh, who is my Father. Uh, they would love it if he responded directly like that because the moment he does that, that's the trigger for a charge of blasphemy. They could have him arrested, they could have him put on trial, they could have him done away with. That's what they were after. But it wasn't time for that yet for Jesus. And so he doesn't answer them directly. In fact, what he does is he says, well, I've got a question for you guys. And you see this here, don't you? He says, um, John the Baptist, um, his baptism, uh, was it from heaven or was it from man? So in other words, was John the Baptist from God or not? Now this is a question which put them into a very, very awkward position because if they said, well, John the Baptist's baptism, that was from heaven, 
then Jesus could rightly say, well, all right then, why did you not follow him? Uh, They didn't want that. Alternatively, if they said to him, well, John the Baptist's baptism, that's from man, then they were afraid that the crowd would lynch them because the crowd believed that John was from God. And so what do they do? Well, down in verse 7, I think it is, um, in verse uh, 7, how did they answer? Uh, they simply said to Jesus, we don't know. They, they feigned ignorance. And Jesus says, well, all right then, well, if you won't tell me, uh, then I'm not going to tell you by whose authority I'm doing these things. Now, that's the context, friends, but this conversation is not over uh, because that question is still hanging. By whose authority has Jesus done these things? Who is Jesus? That's the question, really. And so what he does is he says, let me tell you a story. And in verses 9 through to 16, it's about a man who planted a vineyard. Now, picture uh, Judea in those days. The hillsides of Judea would have been blanketed with vineyards. Ideal climate for, uh, uh, for growing grapes and uh, uh, wine, of course, was a fundamental part of their, their culture. And so the, uh, the, the hills of Judea are covered in vineyards and it was a common business strategy for someone if they owned some land uh, and they themselves could not work that land because they might live at a distance uh, for them to turn the land into a, into a vineyard, build a wall around the land, um, put in a, uh, build a, a wine press, uh, build a tower so that uh, they could use that to look out for people that might uh, intrude and so on, and then to rent the vineyard out to tenant farmers and just collect a percentage of the fruit as the rent. So some wine, maybe some grapes. Now, in verse 10, this is exactly uh, what had happened in Jesus' parable. In verse 10, the landowner then sent a servant to go and collect the rent. Um, If you're an owner, if you ever had problems collecting rent from the tenants, maybe we shouldn't go there. Uh, And this guy had problems collecting the rent because uh, the farmers wouldn't cough up And instead, they physically assaulted the servant. So the the landowner then says, well, I'll send another servant. And they did the same thing. They physically attacked the other servant and sent him on his way without the rent. And eventually, he decided to send his own son to collect. I guess he was thinking that uh, this requires someone who's got some authority to get this rent. Maybe they'll uh, respect my son if I send him. And it's an appalling situation because he thought wrong. Uh, They did not respect his son. Indeed, they killed the son. In verse 15, if you have a look at it, they threw the son out of the vineyard and then they murdered him. Now, the reason that they would have thrown him out of the vineyard first uh, was because if they had killed the son in the vineyard, then according to Jewish uh, laws of uncleanness, that would have meant that, that, la- that, that the, uh, the plants uh, and the, uh, the fruit would be ritually unclean and no one would buy the wine. 
So, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to be ritually unclean. So you toss him out of the vineyard and you murder him outside uh, the vineyard. Right? Great hypocrisy. Now, why did they kill the son? That's a question. And the reason is to do with uh, some of the Jewish traditions in the other um, uh, books of Jewish law, so the, uh, the, the Talmud, uh, for example. And uh, according to Jewish tradition, uh, tradition, if a landlord's son died and he was the only heir, then the property would be inherited by the tenants, uh, the people who... Uh, derived their income from it. And that explains verse 14, if you take a look at verse 14, where it says, But when the tenants saw him, that is the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. That's the parable. Now, uh, this parable, friends, created a very real uh, problem for the religious leaders that were listening. Because they knew that Jesus was not simply just telling them a a gruesome but interesting story for entertainment's sake. Uh, These were biblical scholars. And they knew uh, that the Old Testament said a thing or two about a vineyard. I wonder if you might just come with me in the Old Testament uh, for a moment to Isaiah chapter 5. This is just one passage that deals with this. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 5 on page 486, that'll do. Yep, 486. Um, Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Everyone got that? Okay, I'll just wait for the rustle of papers to stop. Then I know that you've all got it. Hmm unless you're using your iPhone or your e-reader. Okay, Uh, Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, friends, Isaiah is not interested in agriculture. I mean, he might be otherwise, but not in this text. Uh, this is, it's a metaphor for the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, Israel is God's vineyard. It's a good metaphor, really, isn't it? Because a vineyard, you have to kind of clear the land, you have to take away the stones, you have to plant, you have to nurture, you have to care. And that is exactly what God has done for Israel. When he brought them out of Egypt, he brought them into the land and he's cared for them, he's nourished them and he expects fruit. The fruit is the fruit of righteousness, a love for God and an obedience to his word and a trust in him. It is the fruit of faith and repentance. But you know, the Old Testament tells the story of God sending his messengers to collect some of that fruit. (laughs) Sending his prophets uh, with the expectation of there being fruit. 
Um, but what did the leaders of Israel see the priests, they're, they're the ones who were cultivating Israel spiritually. Um, how did the spiritual leaders of Israel treat the prophets? Let's think about it. Um, Jeremiah, he was a prophet, wasn't he? What did they do to Jeremiah when he came preaching? Does anyone know? Anyone remember? Anyone ever crack at it? What did they do to Jeremiah? Yep. They put him in a hole with mud in it. Is that what you said? Yep. And that's pretty right. I'd, I'd say, I'd, uh, say they, they, they chucked him down a pit of slime. That's God's messenger. Um, Ezekiel, uh, he was rejected. What about Elijah? You know, that great victory on Mount Carmel. Uh, and then Jezebel sent her men after him to kill him. Elijah was running for his life. Um, Amos uh, had to run for his life as well uh, when he delivered God's word. Um, the prophet Micah, uh, he was smashed in the face. Um, Zechariah. Does anyone know what happened? What they did to Zechariah? Any ideas? Well, they killed him. They murdered him, and they murdered him inside the temple, uh, just near the altar. Uh, you see, being a prophet of God is not a glamour position. Now, sometimes you hear about prophets these days, or apparent prophets, who roll into town and. Uh, you know, put on their show and you know make a few prophecies, collect the money, and roll out of town and so on. And everyone says how great that was, etc. That's not that's not prophecy. The role of the prophet was to take the message of God to God's people, to exp to 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 proclaim the holiness and the righteousness and the great deeds of God, to expose sinful rebellion against God, to expose idolatry, uh, to expose um, stubbornness and to call on people to make a choice to either turn back to God and to bear the fruit of righteousness, of repentance and faith in your life or to face the sure and certain judgment of God. That's a good prophecy about the future, isn't it? Unless you repent, you will be judged. And that's the role of a prophet. Now, you know, what do they say? If you don't like the message, what do you do? You shoot the messenger. And this is the, the Old Testament is a history of God sending his servants to God's people to collect the rent, to bear a fruit of righteousness, and for them to be assaulted, to be beaten, to be... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says this world was not worthy of them. Right? That's the role of a prophet. Anyone want to be a prophet? Well, friends, we are prophets when we actually declare the gospel to people, uh, talking about faith and repentance and the coming judgment of God. Now, how did the religious leaders react to Jesus' story? Well, they were furious. 
they're absolutely infuriated by the story and for three reasons. First of all, because there is an implication in this story about the identity of Jesus. That Jesus is in fact the son, the heir. This was doubly infuriating to them because it was only an implication. It was not explicit, it was not enough for a charge of blasphemy that they would have loved. Secondly, it infuriated them because in verse 19, they're not stupid. They knew that it was about him, about them, that he was talking, that they were the tenant farmers. And thirdly, it was even worse than that because in verse 15, Jesus asked them a question and the question was, what should be done to these tenant farmers? And the answer, have a look at verse 16. In verse 16, the answer is that he, the owner, will come and will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, he records the same uh, incident and he fills it out a little bit more and he, uh, he lets us know that in fact the crowd also answered that question. And the crowd also said that these tenant farmers should be punished. And so the religious leaders are left in a position of feeling less than comfortable. In verse 19, they really, 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 really now wanted to arrest Jesus and have him done away with. Now, this is this uh, real irony in this, isn't there? Because they've just been trapped. Um, their reaction to the parable actually proves that they are the tenant farmers. They're so infuriated that they're being accused of being the tenant farmers that they act in exactly the same way that the tenant farmers would act. They fulfilled the prophecy. They wanted to kill Jesus. Now, friends, um, in uh, verse 16, when the crowd heard this parable, they were shocked. Uh, they were shocked by the ungodliness of the tenants. They were shocked by the suffering of the landowner. They, they were so shocked that they called out, May this never be. God forbid that a situation like this should ever happen. But it did happen. Because God sent his only son into this world. Uh, after the succession of prophets came God the son. He came to God's vineyard and the tenant farmers had him killed. Uh, these religious leaders, they weren't interested in spiritual fruit. They weren't interested in godliness. They weren't interested in giving God the glory. No, it was all about them. Uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elders, they were uh, well positioned uh, in a position of status and authority uh, in, uh, in Israel. And they wanted to control that. They wanted to keep their control over who they were. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They did not want the vineyard to be God's kingdom, they wanted it to be their kingdom. And so they killed Jesus. 
By the way, after Jesus, who was the very next person that we know of that they killed? Stephen. Yeah, that's right. And it's really interesting because uh, Stephen, after the death, the resurrection of Jesus, Stephen uh, was um, uh, in a confrontation with uh, these leaders. And I'd like you to have a look at, um, at that confrontation. Can you turn over to Acts chapter 7 uh, for a moment? In Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen gave a fairly long speech to these religious leaders which will be for your edification to read through on another occasion. But in 50, verse 51, we have the bottom line here, page 776, by the way, if you're still looking. In verse 51, Stephen bottom lines the whole discussion by saying to them, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. It's quite confronting, isn't it? He's saying the succession of prophets, your fathers rejected them and now you've gone and killed the son. You know, this uh, confrontation, if you go back to um, Luke 20, <clears throat> the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders is not over as yet because it doesn't end with this prophecy about the death of the son. Uh, instead, if you go back to Luke 20 verse 17 he Jesus continues and it says that he looked directly at them read into that you imagine Jesus kind of staring straight at you you communicate so much with body language can't you and he asked them then what is the meaning of that which is written the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now this is something which, is, which after his death was really going to come back and uh, challenge his enemies. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. It can equally be translated as the cornerstone. This is a quote from Psalm 118. And in that psalm, uh, Israel's king uh, in battle was being hemmed in on every side by the enemies of God, by the nations. And the kings of the rulers of the world had written off Israel's king as being... Uh, not effective, as being a weak king, one who would easily be defeated. Um, the, uh, the psalm says that he's considered to be like a stone, a stone that has been rejected as rubbish by the builders. 
But in the Psalm 118, uh, it's really a triumphal psalm because it's a psalm that says that this king who was rejected, who was despised, is in fact riding into the city victorious because God has given him the victory. Now, the stone the builders rejected, uh, what does this mean? It says, in fact, becomes the cornerstone. Uh, The cornerstone is a stone that uh, is laid at the foundations uh, of the building, uh, which sets the alignment for the other walls. So the whole alignment of the building depends on this key, this critical stone. It could also be translated as the capstone. And uh, the capstone, if you can envisage uh, a a building that has walls that are in an arc, in an arch, you get to the top of the arch and you need a stone at the top that is perfectly uh, cut uh, in order to sit on top and to hold the walls together. In other words, it's saying this stone that the builders thought was trash has in fact is in fact the most important stone of the whole building. And that that is how Israel's king is described. The the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Soon they would kill Jesus, the son of the vineyard owner. But what this quote tells us is that God would give him the victory. By the way, it's also saying that the religious leaders of Israel are the enemies of God's king. God would soon give him the victory because on the third day he would rise from the dead. Having paid the penalty for our sin through his death, he would now, as the stone the builders rejected, He would now become the capstone because he would be, through his resurrection, victorious over death. And in so doing, he would be victorious over God's great enemy, who is Satan, that fallen angel, uh, who has us just where he wants us to be when we are unforgiven of our sins. Now the question was, and Paul in Colossians says that by Jesus' death he has disarmed Satan. He's taken away the power he has over us because he's dealt with the guilt of our sin. The question at the beginning of this whole confrontation was who gave Jesus his authority? And the answer is, well he got his authority from his father who is the creator God of the entire universe. After this confrontation, it would not be too long before his death and his resurrection, and then in due time, his disciples, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, would now be preaching and proclaiming the message of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven 
through his death on the cross and that we can have new life through his resurrection. But friends, the apostles became like the prophets because if they hated the master, then they're going to hate the servants as well, aren't they? All right? Now, we see this in, uh, uh, in, in the book of Acts, that the, the religious elite uh, would attack uh, those who came with the message of Jesus. Uh, can I get you to look at one last passage, from, uh, and that is Acts chapter 4. And uh, Acts chapter 4 is that, you know that uh, passage where Peter and John, they've, um, they've, there's a man who's, uh, who's crippled, and uh, they went and healed the, the, crippled, the crippled man. And it says that, he went, that he, this man had, hadn't walked, that he got up on his feet and he was walking and he was leaping and he was praising God. There's a song about it, isn't there? I, I, I won't sing the song for you. Right? But, you know, you know, that's the context here. And it's a great joyful occasion, isn't it? Because of what God has done. Well, in verse 5 of chapter 4, they face the same grilling from the same people who grilled Jesus. Let me read to you from verse 5. In verse 5, after this great miracle had happened, the next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law... It's the same crowd. They met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men from the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them and they asked, by what power or what name did you do this? That's the same question, isn't it? By whose authority do you do these things? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone and salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. By what authority did Jesus drive the merchants from the temple? Well, he didn't answer them directly because it wasn't the time for that as yet. When the same men asked the disciples in, in whose name, by whose authority have they healed this crippled man? Well, they had no hesitation, did they? The, 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 they'd already killed Jesus. He'd already risen from the dead. So this is now time just to be open and frank. And they say to them, well, it's, it's in the name of Jesus, actually. Uh, the, the stone that you rejected. Well, guess what? He's now become the capstone through his resurrection. Jesus is the one important stone that holds together the entire building. And friends, we, we don't have time to follow this through, but I've listed some passages for you on your outline from 1 Peter and from Ephesians, uh, which speak about this building that Jesus is the capstone of. 
and the cornerstone, that it is a building that is made of, uh, of, uh, of living stones, of flesh and blood. It's made of people. It's, 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 it's made of people who, who are held together, who are held in alignment, whose entire existence uh, depends on being living stones who have been forgiven and who have called on the only name by which we must be saved. And that is Jesus. It is living stones who bear the fruit of righteousness, of a changed life, of faith and repentance, faith in Jesus. And so we all all must make a choice because we can choose to make Jesus the central figure of our lives the one in whom we place our trust as the Son of God the Father, the one who died and rose again. And we can turn our lives over to living for him, bearing the fruit of righteousness. That's one choice. Or we can say no to Jesus. We can reject Jesus He can be for us the stone that the builders rejected. When we go back to Luke chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus says that in that case, he becomes the stone upon which we trip over. And you know what happens when you trip over, don't you? You hit the head on the... That's it. Or he can be like the capstone that comes falling down on us. And crushes us. This is a clear teaching of judgment for those who reject Jesus. And so, we need to get it right about Jesus, don't we? Uh, I want to suggest that there are there is a certain churchmanship which talks about Jesus and has Jesus as a very important part of church life, but where Jesus and his death and his resurrection and faith and repentance is not central to the life and the existence of the church and of its members. We mustn't be like that. Uh, Jesus uh, is not just a wise moral figure from the past. Jesus is not just the founder of a great world religion. Uh, Jesus uh, is not just a social revolutionary who gives us inspiration to go out and do good deeds to try to change our world. No, he is much, much more than that. And to think of him in those ways, it's like buying a ticket to Sydney and finding yourself in Nova Scotia. You've got the right name, but the wrong Jesus. So let us be people for whom... Jesus is the capstone, the cornerstone, because Jesus is God the Son, rejected by men, but raised victorious. The rejected stone who has become the capstone. Is that enough for today? let's, Let's close off with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, uh, we did pretend to even be able to uh, uh, to plumb the depths of uh, the
the enormity of uh, what it meant uh, that you uh, should, having sent your prophets uh, into the world, that you uh, then sent your own son. Uh, And you sent your son intentionally, knowing that he would be rejected and that he would be killed. And uh, in your sovereign wisdom, uh, his death became the means of our salvation, our forgiveness. We thank you, Father God, that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, that he is raised from the dead, that he is seated with you in the heavenlies, that he has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we become living stones with Jesus as our capstone, as our cornerstone. Father, we pray that we would not be fuzzy about Jesus, that we would not be hazy about his place in our lives, that we would not be drawn away, that he would not be central anymore. Help us, Lord God, to be people who bear for you the fruit of faith, of repentance, the fruit of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.